Greetings all. Welcome back to the Captainizer podcast. This week we're we're going to take a little turn here and we're we're going to flip we're going to flip the script a little bit. Our guest is Eric Clegg. He's down in uh, the Central Florida area and he is a former police officer that has turned entrepreneur and is crushing it in his post-law enforcement life. So I wanted to kind of take a, a different spin today and talk to an officer who has left the profession in the midst of this crisis. I call it a crisis because I think it is a crisis in across America where we are having a very difficult time recruiting young talent into the law enforcement profession, a difficult time retaining talent, and uh, also a difficult time developing. And you know, I think everybody knows that you know Performance Protocol is our main sponsor for this for this podcast, and they do a lot of work in the area of recruitment, retention, and development. And we've been seeing some very very interesting numbers across America. And maybe we'll get to that later in the show. But before all that, Eric, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. All right. So you're in uh, in the Tampa area and you are now an entrepreneur. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, really how you got started in law enforcement. And then we'll move into uh, your post-law enforcement career. Yeah, sure. Um, so originally from uh, Tom's River, New Jersey, um, nobody really knows it unless you've seen the Jersey Shore. So we're the, <laughs> we're, we're the city you have to go through uh, before you go there. Um, join the I'm Army. I'm familiar with it, by the way. So are you? I was actually born right outside of Philly. And it, I, I always love it when people say the shore because I, I didn't move to the Midwest until I was like in third grade. But my summers prior to that were vacations were at the shore. Not at the beach, the shore. The shore, because there's only one. There's no other shores. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I joined the Army uh, at 18. Uh, I left for basic training. I really, uh, the, the biggest reason why I joined was I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And the recruiter said, hey, you want to be an MP? And I was like, yeah, cool. Sounds good. I don't really know what they do. I looked up some videos and I was like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so I left, uh, went to basic training. Uh, after I finished basic training, I went to, uh, Fort Lewis and I deployed to Afghanistan from there. Uh, I did a, just one deployment uh, over there and then I came back and then I finished out my time at a very, very small base that's since shut down in the Netherlands. And, uh, that was, I'd say the best time of my military career, um, and uh, we really didn't do much. Uh, we we made it look like we did a lot, but um, you know, I had a lot of time there, so I, I got my degree from uh, Purdue um, online. Boiler up, yeah. There we go. And then my last, I'd say probably year in, I, I had talked to some friends uh, who I grew up with, some that were in the army. They they all seemed to uh, be going to Florida, um, and the main consensus was, hey, if you were an MP in the Army, you can be a cop in Florida with two weeks of crossover. So my time in the Army, I did almost zero law enforcement. If you don't know, MPs have, you know, there's several different functions. So I, I really didn't do law enforcement while I was in. So then 
I took leave, flew back, did the training, took this test, passed the test somehow. And then I got hired by an agency in the Tampa Bay area. And then I was on terminal leave. So, you know, like the last whatever leave you have saved up, you use it all. Uh, I was on terminal leave and I started as a patrol officer in the field training program while I really knew nothing. Um, and I think it was at, at some level, it may have been detrimental, but at another level, uh, I, I learned pretty quick uh, and it was a, it was an interesting experience. And uh, well, while it, yeah, I, so we're, we're going to have to, we're going to pull on those strings a little bit, but before we do that, so where did you go to basic training? Because the army, I think they send you all over, all over the place. There's different places. Yeah, so places. Uh, Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, they for MPs, they do one station unit training. I think it's like 20 weeks altogether. You do the whole thing together. So okay. you do um, the basic training, and then like the next day you start MP school, but like you're still with drill sergeants and stuff. So it's really not that big of like a change. Like you still get yelled at. And then you're like, so you're military. So how long is basic? How long was your basic training? 18 weeks. Okay. Altogether. And then, and then you went to like MP school. Is that how that no, works? No. So. Or it's all part of that. It just switches over. Like it's okay. Like, okay you graduate it. You like your first 10 weeks, like nine or 10 weeks. It's okay. You graduate it. And now tomorrow we start job specific training, but because it's one state, there's like four, I think there's like four to eight jobs in the army that have that like infantry cab scouts mps i think there's a couple other ones too that have that and like you're with like you don't go to a school like you don't leave your you don't go home and stuff like you wait till the whole thing's over and then you go home okay I, I was just asking because i was curious as to you know the type of training that you did as an mp and then um and then how you you know, i guess maybe in essence it almost sounds like you test it out in a way, or your military uh, police experience was uh, accepted like a transfer type of credit because Florida, yes. Florida is also a little bit different in terms of how they, how police officers are trained. Um, I think in most States there's, you have a centralized Academy or a network of academies where once you get hired, you go through these academies, you spend anywhere from three to six months in, in, in an academy setting. So in, but in Florida, it's kind of built around If I remember correctly, it's built around like a junior college type of um, curriculum and program. Is, is that still the way it is? Yeah. So I actually, I was an instructor at the, the academy um, down here and it, it is a college. Um, and when you do, when you do the, it's called the EOT equivalency of training. When you do that, they, it's the same thing. You just show up for those two weeks, but the regular Academy is six months. I could be wrong on that. Um, and they don't like live there and sleep there and stuff. They just show up and it's at a college. So it's different pipelines really that right. they're opening up to, to bring people in, which, you know, it, it, that makes sense. And, you know, in this, and I, I really wanted to ask about this because in today's environment, where it is recruits are like worth their weight in gold. If you can find recruits yeah. and a lot of agencies across the country are always competing for veterans to bring veterans into their agency for a lot of reasons, right? Uh, veterans have specific job training. They're generally uh, uh, more mature. They've, they've demonstrated their ability to handle responsibility. And in many cases, particularly in the last 20 years, 
you're you're bringing in somebody that is stress tested, people that have been on multiple deployments that have seen uh, significant ma- amounts of combat, and you know that's um, you know it, it's it's something that you just can't teach in an academy setting in for domestic law enforcement in the US. Um there are also you know that, that can create some hurdles as well in terms of you know creating the delineation and you know what's you know what translates what doesn't but that's interesting. And I, I say all this because as in 1986 dating myself when I went into the Air Force right out of high school because I still I needed some I call it seasoning. I wasn't quite you know sure what I wanted to do. Um, but our, our basic training in the air force then was six weeks. And then we rolled right into, uh, I was what they called a security specialist. The other thing, and we've talked about this previously, a lot of States like in Indiana in particular, where I am, when you get hired, regardless of the level of experience that you have and the training that you have, the first thing that you do, uh, is you go through what they call a pre-basic. It's a 40 hour course, uh, that's that's uh, training from our academy. It, it can be done remotely, but uh, you know, with a, an instructor, a certified instructor. But you go through your basic law enforcement uh, responsibilities, like rules of arrest, firearms, train, you know, qualification. Um, but at the end of that forty-week class, you're technically uh, you have all the authority and 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 power and arrest powers of of a certified officer. The caveat being that within that first year of, of employment, you have to complete the uh, Indiana Law Enforcement Academy. You have to complete the certification there. So, uh, and depending on the size of the agency and the way the, the structure is, um, you, you might not go into an FTO program in a really small department, or if you do, it might be limited. So, really? yeah. So when you when you mentioned like, yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing, but uh, yeah, and I, you know, and I'm, I know you're probably being a little flippant, but uh, you know, there's some truth to that too, where it's kind of like we we don't really know what we're getting into, and you know that you know that can be you know that can really set a, an individual up for failure, and it can really set a community up for failure if an officer has to engage in a use of force or something that's very controversial, and then you look at the level of training and you realize hmm, maybe we have a, a negligent failure to train issue uh, or others other things that could, that could stem from that, but. I digress. Yeah, I think there is there is a uh, well, one obviously it was a staffing issue. I think across the, the board in the U.S. Um, for law enforcement, and two, it's like, well, how do you combat the staff staffing issue? Just start pumping people out, start getting people onto the street, and uh, yeah, it, it it could be the perfect storm for something really bad to happen. We're so we're we're setting up the conversation. <laughs> uh, for for where things go, right? Because uh, you're, uh, I, I you know you're one of the people that left the profession, and we're going to get to that here in a minute. We'll just just give a little teaser. Now, before that, you you get hired, you go through your your training, you're on the street, you're kind of starting to figure things out. Um, you know what what was that like? Uh, it was interesting. I I definitely think. Um, I don't, I don't like to think, you know, I have, uh, some high aptitude for learning, but I think I have just an ability to just like keep going even when like, I shouldn't like just keep working. And I think I just worked so much. I picked up every overtime shift and I, I worked so much that 
I, I did really, I did really well. I learned a lot about the job in a really short amount of time. And that led me into uh, becoming a task for a DEA task force officer um, and uh, investigating like crimes that, you know, I was working with guys who had like 10, 15 years on and I had like two and a half. They're like, what are you doing here? Um, <laughs> and I, I think the, the response to that, it's like, it's, it's kind of been, you know, like my whole journey. It's like, I don't, I don't really know. I'm just trying to figure it out, man. I'm not like, you know, I'm just trying to figure it out. And I think, uh, I think that's what I really enjoy. I enjoy figuring things out, fixing problems. Um, well, hard work pays off too. When yeah. And hard, hard work. Yeah. yeah. When you work I, hard, people will recognize that. And, you know, good leaders can spot good talent and, uh, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of different reasons why you want to choose young officers to go into roles like that. Um, so when you, when you were on the task force, were you working, were you doing UC work? Um, yeah. okay. And, and so there's, you know, there, you know, sometimes they're just looking for the right type of, of personality, you know, someone that just, it's got the right look that, you know, that can talk to talk, walk to walk it. Yeah. It, you know, and that's all important, right? <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think I did a great job at pretending to be a degenerate. Um, I don't know how much I needed to pretend, but you know, <laughs> I think I did a great job doing that. Um, and then from there, um, I, cause the agency I was at was a smaller agency. Um, when my time was up, I, I switched to a larger agency, uh, in the Tampa Bay area. And from there I, I kind of restarted it. Um, it was, it was very strange. I got a lot of strange questions. Like, what are you doing? You know, you, cause the people at that agency knew me obviously, cause we had worked together. They're like, what are you doing? And it was kind of just me going after a new challenge or something, you know, that I seemed to like to do. And um, the last two years I was at that agency, I was a field training officer. And I think that was the best job I had by far. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I was also teaching at the Academy as well. Uh, I was teaching defensive tactics there. And I think, yeah, being a field training officer was definitely the, the best job I've had. Um, I mean, the one I have now is better because I'm my own boss, but, and I can have a beard, but uh, the, he, as a police officer, that was by far the best job I, I could have. So having a beard and being in uniform and being an army, uh, an army vet, what was that like the first time you put on a uniform and had a beard? Um, so the first agency I worked at, we were allowed to have beards and uniforms. The second, no beards. Oh, obviously. no beards. Oh, so you went the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, I, I think I just kind of like breaking the rules. So it felt really good the first time I could have a beard and uniform. <laughs> um, so yeah, it shouldn't have felt good, but it felt really good. You know, I, I and I've, again, without going too far down this road. That was really bizarre for me. We used to do beards as a fundraiser. Uh, we used to do No Shave November. We uh, we would raise actually a pretty significant amount of money uh, for um, local charities, and we would do that every November. And it was it was hard for me to put my uniform on if I had facial hair. It was I was <laughs> like I felt like oh my gosh I shouldn't be doing this like I'm um. I'm violating laws of the universe, but you know, after we did that for a few years, then there was, everybody wanted beards, you know, it's the whole beard and tattoo thing. Like, uh, beards and tattoos will make me happy and it'll make me a better police officer. 
because I'm happy, I'll be a better, I'll be a better officer. It's sure. just like, all right, whatever you want to tell yourself, <laughs> but you know, if it's that important, you know, we eventually changed, changed rules and, you know, adapted and, and modernized and, you know, maybe, you know, it, you know, it took me a little bit to come around to some of it. Uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, but uh, we eventually, we, we probably made that change five, six years ago, so maybe a little bit longer, but people like it. And, you know, the community didn't even seem to notice. It was like nobody, it was almost like one of these self-inflicted type of personas, like, oh my gosh, uh, you can't have a beard. You can't have visible tattoos. And there's still people to this day are like, you know, vehemently opposed to it. Um, they like that clean cut look uh crisp uniforms and uh you know and for good reason there's 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 some science behind that right but um yeah it's interesting it's very interesting yeah i'm all for the beards <laughs> clearly yeah, all, for them. Yeah. <laughs> all right so you're tell me a bit about your experience as an fto why why was that your favorite favorite role that you had as a police officer well, I, I think two reasons. One was the, the squad I worked with, the people I worked with, they were great. Um, I still talk to them to this day. Um, some of us are still pretty close. And then secondly, I think the obviously it was because it was a, it was a pretty high paced agency and we were facing the same rec recruiting issue. So it was a lot of work. But I enjoyed, uh, for the most part, I mean, there were some trainees I, I didn't enjoy as much, but for the most part, I enjoyed um, the training aspect of it because it was, I, I think what's missed a lot in in training is you can, you can teach policy and procedure and how to write a report and geo and all that stuff, but we never really teach decision making. And I think that's a huge thing because the job is really based on decision making. It's not, it's not a card that, I mean, yes, there are like investigative aid tools, but it's not something every situ every situation is unique to a certain extent. Like, yeah, okay, there's a list of things that you need to meet for probable cause or a list of things you need to put in a report or an affidavit, but there's also decision making that comes along with that. And especially when you're giving somebody the ability to take somebody's freedom away, potentially take their life away, significantly injure them, injure them whatsoever. You physically harm them, physically restrain them. Um, we really don't focus on the decision-making process as much, which uh, I really enjoyed teaching people how to make decisions uh, and like evaluating risks. And it actually, it, I think I have a, a pretty pretty decent grasp on like the evaluation of risks and when to take risks. And, and it really helped me, you know, in my future, my endeavors now. Um, but it, it still, it still amazes me that it's not even taught really in a lot of the FTO courses that you go through. Um, it's just taught like document that, you know, they have bad grammar or document that, you know, they let somebody get to their weapon side. Um, not like you don't even like, teach how to how, how how to think and how to make those calculated decisions um so yeah yeah it, it every everything everything is a risk calculation and the uh that that's a, that's a great perspective and it's it's a topic that we've never delved into really on this show so i, I wouldn't mind spending a few minutes talking about this Absolutely. because the 
I always contended that the FTO is the most important division in your police department. Your FTOs are the most important people. Maybe a close second would be your your frontline supervisors, your sergeants, particularly as a chief or an upper upper level administrator, because those those are the people that actually set the tone and the culture for who your agency is. Because it doesn't matter what your policy says. It doesn't matter what the chief says. It uh, doesn't matter what the captain says. It matters what is taught and what's accepted. And, uh, you know, and jo- Jocko will, you know, in his book, um, Extreme Ownership, you know, he has a great line in there. And it really resonated with me but for, for a lot of reasons for things throughout my career. But, you know, from a policing perspective, and it really, it's just life in general, right? You get what you tolerate. So, you know, if you're an organization that that has an FTO program that do- doesn't have things buttoned down, that that's that's where you're going to see problems. And the problems may not they may not surface in year one. It may be year two, three, or four in an officer's career where that where that settles in. And and in a lot of different ways. Just for one, like you're saying, decision making, um, how to, how to teach decision making. You have. If you have an FTO that is maybe uh, has a hard time letting go of decision making, like they're they're responsible for the call, so they make all the decisions. What you know, then the recruit never learns how to make a decision. Sure, right. So what what's going to happen when that when now that recruit officer is out of the program and they're they're released, they're on solo patrol. And they come across a question where their FTO would always answer for them. Now, what do they do? Yeah. Call their sergeant. <laughs> Annoy their sergeant. <laughs> so give me an example of a, um, I don't know. Did you have like any, any, as a, any harrowing experiences as an FTO for decisions that, that it, and I, maybe just start with driving, right? That's one of the most terrifying things as an FTO is, is watching a young officer turn on the lights and sirens for the first time. Yeah. So yeah, we had, uh, I had this, he was, he was probably my favorite trainee. He ended up actually not working out with the agency and he works someplace else. And he's, he's still a law enforcement officer, uh, but he works somewhere else now. And um, he was from another country and he's probably going to watch this. So he's going to, he's going to laugh, but um, uh, one of the, one of the, the nicest, hardest working people, that you could ever run into. And uh, he could not type. Uh, his English, he practiced his English to the point where it got better. But initially it was people didn't understand him. Uh, and but the, the worst by far was his driving. And um, we go to a call one day and it was like something. Somebody like jumped in a house and there's somebody in the house. And it was something you'd respond in emergency mode for. And I remember, and I, we we had all the cameras, right? Just the full axon, um, just probably like you guys had. Turns the lights on, and uh, you can hear me, like you can hear my voice go. I'm like, oh, here we go, and <laughs> driving. And there's there's two cars, like they're coming this way, like this, and he goes, <laughs> and he, he like straddles the line, and. Uh, Real calm, I, I say, oh, this isn't going to be good. And 
we narrowly missed both cars. And he looks at me and he called me coach. And he goes, coach, I did good, huh? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, man, just, just keep going. And he turned into like an expert driver while he was driving in emergency mode. Without emergency mode, he couldn't, he couldn't drive. We'd almost get into an accident every day. But when you had to turn the lights on, he um he he turned into like a professional race car driver. It was it was amazing. Um but uh yeah, I, I think driving definitely. Uh, I was pretty fortunate. I didn't have there were definitely like a lot of high uh, the, the the area I worked was it was it was pretty high crime and there was a lot of people and I don't I can't think of any situations where it was like a blatant safety issue. I think we we're all pretty good. I do remember at my first agency I was clearing a building um with somebody who had a trainee and uh the trainee was like pointing his gun right at my face, like when we were stacked up on the door. And I like went like this and just moved it. Um, but as far as trainees, I actually know, like fairly safe scenarios are it was it was they were actually pretty good for the most part. Like when it came to you know high risk stuff, maybe that's something I did. Uh, but yeah, thinking about it now, you know, and I never really made a big deal about the safety issues to like everybody else, I would always just talk to them about it. Uh, I think there's a lot of FTOs who'd be like, Oh, he did this. Ah, well, it's also he or she's first day as a, I actually, yeah, I think I had all male recruits the whole time I was an FTO, but um, it's also like the, the first time they've ever had to like point a gun at somebody or maybe the first altercation they've been in. So like cut them a break, you know? Um, but yeah, definitely that driving thing that scared me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um so yeah so many so many examples that the 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 gun that that's that's not uncommon so yeah you know interesting you know i came i came into the profession you know in the military in the late 80s you know and, and then on the civilian side in the mid 90s um people it, one of the things that we noticed um and and this really, this started, this trend really started before I, I started as chief in 2012, but the, the recruits that were coming through a lot of times we, we were hiring people that have never once been in a physical altercation. Um, they've never been punched. They've never punched anybody. Um, and now we're putting in, in this environment where, uh, and let's just say this, like never played any contact sports, like didn't right. wrestle, didn't play football. So, you know, physical violence and, and the adaptation to physical violence is a very new thing. So now you bring him into a long and maybe you can touch on this, too, as a defensive tactics instructor. What's you know, what's the concern when you have a young recruit that's never been in a fight, that's never been punched? Uh, that's never had to use any type of force. And now uh, you're training them and you're putting them out into the environment where the first altercation they get into might be a fight for their life, quite frankly. So, you know, how do you thread that needle dose appropriately? And, you know, what's your experience around that? So I think a huge part for me was 
the fact one thing is uh, physical well physical altercations when you're in like a real one they're always scary even if you have the upper hand right there is always an element of fear uh but I, i've been doing uh, jujitsu kickboxing i started kickboxing when i was four uh, i still avidly train like once twice a day in jujitsu um that isn't the same as being able to mechanically control somebody it does help you but it's right. not the same so all the people who are like black belts in jiu-jitsu who are like oh yeah you know i can do all this i could teach cops no you can't i'll tell you right now no it's 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 a completely different it helps a lot tremendously um but you need to apply it to gaining compliance over a person right not choking somebody unconscious and you need to apply it to state statutes and all that good stuff that everybody can get in trouble for now. Um, so I, I think for me, as far as I, like I said, I, I never really had any issues with that because I always said to the, to the recruit, like I always made them feel, Hey, listen, like I'm going to, I'm going to be there for you. Um, I don't like, I don't want you to get hurt. We can, you know, go, we're going to have to go do this. We're going to have to get into a fight. Um, and I was really avid about training. Um, I, I try to get them up in the mat room to roll and do all that kind of stuff. And I, I think really the biggest thing that happens, I think why people get hurt a lot is two things, right? An overreaction or a hesitation. Uh, sometimes both, sometimes an overreaction uh, or sometimes a hesitation and then an overreaction because they hesitate it. Um, so I would try to mitigate hesitation, um, to a pretty, like, like to a very, very small amount, like with everything they did, I would always tell them like, just make a decision. So I way it's already planned in their head that like, Hey, I have to make a decision. And I would never really, I, I mean, I did raise my voice sometimes, but I would never try to, um, you know, yell or, or be little for the most part. I mean, we all make mistakes, but, right. um, so I, I think telling them, hey, I, I have your back. I'm going to take care of you. I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you really helps them be able to engage. Even people, I, I remember I, I, had this, uh, I had this one trainee, he was, um, he was like real timid, um, didn't, uh, you could tell, didn't have like much life experience. And then you know, after two weeks, we were getting in like foot chases and arresting people. We had like two or three uses of force on suspects who were like, um, they, they were like violent mental subjects. Um, it was actually it was like two in a week, and uh, he did great through all of them. And uh, he actually outran me in the foot chase, and he still makes fun of me for it. But, <laughs> um, I think that really making making them feel like it that there's somebody there that knows more than them that has their back is, is the, is a huge thing because they hear, and I don't know if it was like this at your agency, they hear all the stories, right? All the stories of like the bad stories of like the, the bad shooting or the bad use of force or the guy who got fired or like how hard it is to make it through the FTO program. So when they sit in my car day one, they're already thinking like, I'm going to try to fail them out or, or I'm going to try to do something, you know, to make them, you know, not succeed. Uh, so I think really changing the mentality behind it and changing the way that they look at it is is different because you can teach techniques to control. The, the average person on the street doesn't really know what they're doing in, in a violent altercation. Like even if they're crazy, like you can teach anybody techniques to control somebody within certain, you know, physical specifications. Um, 
But yeah, it's it, it goes back to the decision making thing, knowing that somebody's there to take care of you, somebody has your back, and you can make a decision. And I I think now that we're talking about it, like maybe that is why I didn't really have so many like crazy issues. Well, you clearly had a high level of personal confidence in your ability to protect yourself and defend yourself. And I, I've talked about this a few times, and um, I think I talked a little bit about it with uh, with Mike Malpass in one of my previous um episodes and that for anyone that's interested in defensive tactics um i would strongly encourage you to listen to that episode but then also you know pick up his books he's, he's written two books one's called tame the serpent and the other is uh, uh fall seven rise eight and you know mike was like an ma an mma fighter before mma was the mma so you yeah. know very very on in the early days so for him you know coming into uh the you know the, the policing environment you know he eventually he started policing in Ohio and then eventually moved to Phoenix and was a you know one a Phoenix uh, he was full time SWAT in Phoenix and you know multiple multiple uh, you know deadly force encounters but you know one uh, he actually you remind me a little bit of him in just the way you speak you know just very calm very uh, we're both bald too right he's bald. Um, right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. maybe. I, I watched the episode. I listened to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um I won't ask if you had any altercations with the goose, but you know, that still cracks me up. Um the confidence equals competence. And and you know, in that the the whole concept around tame the serpent really is understanding the the physiological response to fear and stress. And so when you when you have a recruit it you know the challenge really is 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 to really kind of as an FTO and as good FTO right you're trying to modulate you have to understand what a person's ability is so you kind of you got to test them a little bit right sometimes you've got to give them the opportunity to go out and do something just to see how they're going to respond to it how they're going to handle it and that's you know that's a difficult thing to teach uh, other FTOs and it's and you know, so that's where, again, you know, the selection process inside of an agency for understanding who is going to become an FTO, because just because you're technically, tactically proficient doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good teacher. And we confuse that, I think, all the time. And so sure. then we wind up getting recruits that get exposed to uh, uh, an FTO that maybe has a skill set like yours, but then expect someone without the appropriate level of training and, and responsibility to be able to rise to the occasion. Um, and then when they fail, you know, they tell them that they've failed and that just puts more pressure on the recruit. Uh, conversely, you might have someone that's overconfident in their abilities, you know, and you can't, you can't necessarily allow them to fail through overconfidence because that can get them in trouble. Um, so it's a difficult job being an FTO, uh, but it's also, it's also very rewarding, also very taxing. So talk yeah. about, you know, I, when we were having our ca uh, conversation a couple of weeks ago, you were, you were saying, look, you know, I, it, for two years straight, I, I think you had a, you said you had to recruit the entire time. Um, and, I, you know, we had the same issue at our agency where you've got a limited pool of FTOs, but when you're, when you have high turnover, uh, that, that creates a stress on your, on your training program and we're, so what was right. that like? 
Yeah, it was definitely uh, it was definitely rough. Um, there, I mean, there were like one and two off breaks, but it seemed like every time you were on a break, you'd get somebody else's trainee because they were going on vacation or, or whatever, just how things work. Um, it uh, it definitely got frustrating. Um, it it definitely uh, wears on your patience. Um, the towards the end, it it was it was probably the worst for me because because the business was doing so well, so. I, cause I had started it, you know, while I was an officer and, um, doing like two things at once, barely sleeping, dealing with, you know, a trainee who just might not be getting it. I'd, I'd say my, um, I'm usually pretty calm, but I'd say that definitely it was like last two months. I, I was probably on edge <laughs> a lot. Um, I was, I was, yeah, I had probably a pretty short fuse. Um, but I think that's a normal thing, right? Like, I think that's, you know, uh, a normal, you're dealing with the human element here. Uh, you can, you can really only deprive yourself of so much. And the fact that I think I was still functional was amazing. Um, well, your story's not unique though. Right. And, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Like what you started to do on the side. Um, you, you just happen to be doing something outside of police work, sure. but police officers oftentimes are doing side jobs that are all police related, like their security right. jobs. Sometimes it's mandatory overtime. There's a lot of different reasons for it. And that goes back to the point earlier, right? What the, the pressure on the system, um, if you're an agency that's supposed to have 500 officers and you only have 400, the calls for service don't change. So it's really how you manage those calls and then how you manage your people. That's, that's, going to solve it and that that just means less people to handle uh more calls and that that can put that can put pressure so now if you're working an off-duty job or two off-duty jobs and that because those those jobs require and i'll say here in indiana a lot of police officers work as sros so they they, they don't work as full-time sros they work as part-time sros so they on their days off or maybe even on days that they are working, like if you work in a night shift, some might go work at a school for a couple hours and then, and then go. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then go back to, you know, get sleep and then come back to work and do that all again. And, um, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, from a, again, from a, a, a an agency perspective, it's very important to have systems in place where you can understand you know, how often and how long people are working um, so you can monitor them for, for safety because it's, it, you know, ultimately, right. What you mentioned earlier, it's really about decision-making. If we're going to teach decision-making, then we have to have people that are making good decisions because they're well-rested, they're well-trained, they're well-prepared to go out and make decisions because even the best trained, well-prepared officers that are stressed because they have a lack of sleep overwork, they're more prone to make bad decisions and unfortunately most of the time those things are pretty innocuous they're not they're not going to lead to big problems but there's always the time when they do lead to big problems and you know this is you know we could have a technology conversation now around uh, uh this is where I, I really think where modern technology can teach us a lot especially with like wearable technology things like that where we can check someone's hrv we can or, or give somebody some equipment that and technology that allows them to monitor it themselves. Um, 
So they know, hey, look, you know, my I'm a little, I'm not recovered. I'm emotionally dysregulated. That if I get into a into a a, a high stress call, I, I've got to be aware of where I am right now and, and take steps to mitigate, you know, the potential that I might make a bad decision. I agree. Um, I think there's I use this actually when I talk about my software. So all metrics that we have say from hiring processes and everything say officers about average IQ. Most officers about a hundred IQ. Right. Um, but now when you implement all these things like lack of sleep, that's like 10 IQ points off. Right. Um, poor diet. We, not all of them have it, not all officers, but you know, we right. have a lot to do. Multitasking in itself is like one to two points. Um, stress whether it's long-term stress or stress like, oh, I got to, you know, do this or I got to sign off on this stupid training. Um, but I have like calls and five reports to write, stuff like that. That's like another five points. So now you're taking somebody average IQ and degrading them to the level of like, you know, barely functioning. Um, and all other places like pilots, right? They have sleep requirements that they have to have. I'm sure there's other jobs truck drivers uh but but police officers don't and i like i don't say that to say you know cops are stupid or you know like, no, I, fun it. At I understand because because you know i was there and i yeah and i was making business decisions for a significant amount of money operating at that level and i i saw it was impacting me and when you you don't think about those small decisions but it's really just one wrong decision can can mess up somebody's career could end their their livelihood as a police officer um, it could end them up in jail potentially. And um, I think that's just not really talked about. I mean, they have those wellness classes where it's like, yeah, go to the gym, get eight hours of sleep, do all that stuff. Cool. Everybody knows that. But if you don't set an environment up to where that can happen, you're going to reduce the effectiveness of, of the force. Yeah, that's a great observation. And um and it's it's so complex too, right? It seems so simple, but right. yet it's so yeah. complex. And I, you know, one of the things I I it frustrates me. I try not to engage in things like this that kind of like like headlines and buzz headlines. But one of the things like I I and I would talk to our police citizens academy classes about this. But it's the bad the quote the bad apples. You know, they're making the rest of us look bad. Right. And it's it, there is like some kind of belief that there, you know, that there is this conspiracy where agencies are out there hiring, you know, psychopaths, people of, yeah, yeah. just crazy people with yeah. low character, low moral, you know, values, no integrity. And it's like, that's just not the case. I mean, most, I, I and this is where I challenge people. I'm like, if you think that we're out here trying to find people that are going to cause problems for the agency, Go through the process yourself. Go try to get hired at a police department and see if you can make it through. And you know, can you pass the written test? Can you pass the physical fitness evaluation? Can you pass the polygraph? Most people don't realize that. I yeah. mean, just about every police department in America requires a polygraph, right? And yeah. that's so we can, you know, you know, test someone for you, know, you know, what their disclosures are. You know, what have they done in their past? You know, are there things that are in their closet that that could potentially come out down the road that that would say, hey, look, this person isn't a good candidate for policing. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just might mean that, hey, look, they've, they've, there's something there that's probably not 
going to make them a good fit. And then they go through an extensive background uh, check. I mean, and then they have to go through usually like some sort of review process from a a civilian merit commission. And they have to pass a, a psychological exam, a physical exam, all of these hurdles. And this is one of the reasons why we're having such a hard time finding people. It's not because there there are a lot of people that want to do the job that are just can't because of they have something that's preclude, precluding them in that background that agencies can't hire them for. Um, so, yeah, all that to say, yeah. Uh, now now you've done your best to hire the best people, and now you put them out there in an environment where they're, it's like it's dog eat dog. I mean, we're not dealing with people that are the the creme de la creme of society. We're dealing with the people that have no personal accountability, no moral responsibility. Uh, they're always looking for a way out. They're always, you know, trying to trying to skirt the system. And they do it all the time. And yet now we're in this environment where the first thing, you know, people want cameras on police officers because they think the officers are prone to corruption if they're not wearing a camera. <laughs> when it's the complete opposite. It's like, we live in opposite world. It's like, no, the camera, of course the cameras can help us you know, as an accountability tool, but they can also capture great evidence. They can make our work, our workflows more efficient. We can eventually, and I think this will lead us into the next conversation that we're going to have, right? We we can uh, capture efficiencies in what we do through technology, but the people that we're hiring are good, but we're just, we're throwing them in a very negative environment. And when you overstress, overwork, under-resource and under-train, then it's not a matter if you're going to have a problem, it's when you're going to have a problem and how severe is it going to be. Fortunately, most of the cases, it's not that, it, you know, these are the things that are fixable um, that don't have to end careers. But, you know, all, you know, in this in this in this environment right now, it is just like. Wow, uh, I mean, you're not allowed to make a mistake. And no. if you make a mistake, everyone's coming for you. Yep. I, yeah, my little I th- tirade. No, I I totally agree. I think there's a um, the you know the fact that we're gonna analyze somebody over you know one bad decision. Um, I like I get it, right? The decision the decision could kill someone, right? The decision right. could deprive somebody of the freedom. Not mistake. Um, but if it if well, it's not if it it, it is. That's like a huge responsibility to have. So I think we should be doing everything to ensure that they're put in the best scenario to maintain like order and and follow the laws and do everything correctly. You know, it's like you have a car and it needs an oil change and new tires and you're just taking the tires off or stabbing the tires Um, because for yeah. for you know statistics a lot of the time it's like numbers we need so many people on the street or we need you know we need so many people to you know we need this extra off duty detail now everybody's called in on their day off and you know i understand there's going to be times where you're you're going to have to go and miss sleep sure absolutely or you're you're going to have to operate in suboptimal conditions but your whole existence shouldn't be suboptimal right yeah that's i mean there's really no better way to put it you know, at some point, you know, the pressure is going to be too much and, you know, people, you know, people are going to make a mistake. And, um, 
so when you you know you think in terms like that and I, you know i don't i don't want to like necessarily while we're on the fto kind of topic from you know from a street officer's perspective because you know i can talk about this stuff as an administrator all the time right but uh, you know from a street officer's perspective i i look at the uh, um the uh, george floyd case and derek chauvin you know derek chauvin you know is convicted of murder um and uh you know regardless of how you feel about what happened there and i've had this conversation a few times one of the, one of the things that i was really curious about um and maybe someday we'll know this maybe somebody will do the research maybe it's already underway but you know for someone like him i think he was a 19 year veteran you know very seasoned yeah. very experienced police officer training officer uh i i'd be really curious to see what his work environment was like for the year leading up to that, you know, or the, the two or three years leading up to that, um, you know, how much off duty work was he doing? You know, what was going on in his personal life? You know, how was, you know, were, were there early indicators that maybe he was emotionally dysregulated? Um, um, because, because of a lot, it, it could be a lot of different things, but either way, you know, the decision there, like what he did, the, the, kind of like the, one of the sad really outcomes of that of course you know someone lost their life there but you also have a lot you know multiple people that lost their careers and a couple of them were like brand new like right out of the academy yeah. and you know that you know what you know what's your take from the you know and we don't have really talking specifics here i'm just really kind of talking in generalities because that's every day in america and every police department like you know, you know, you're not having use of force cases like that, but you have the potential for use of force cases to go like that because people are fighting the police all the time. And, um, you know, that that's that's a lot. Yeah. So right when you look at the at the footage um, and you see that uh, and I believe they also it's been a while since I, I read through a lot of the stuff, um, but. I believe they also like went to the call too. They weren't even dispatched to it. They, uh, Chauvin and uh, his partner, uh, went to the call. They they like showed up to help. Um, and when you when I watched that body cam video up it, up until you know you know obviously um, the placement on the ground. But when I watched that body cam video at the initial like interaction and where he's like, ah, get me out of the car, get me out of the car, whatever he said, um that just seems like a regular call. Yeah. And obviously there were mistakes made there, of course. Um, you know, he's since been convicted, but um, the first half of the interaction was a regular call. Like, I can't tell you, I, I've had to be people passing, you arrest somebody from a convenience store for whatever reason, and it turns into some altercation when you handcuff them. And it, it's, you know, it, it's crazy. And we think about it. I'm sure when the public sees it, you know, they, they see all the things around it that the the media really like took into account, obviously race and all that stuff. Um, but when you see it as an officer, you start to think like, how did that happen for one? And could I be capable of that? And I, I think there's a lot of people who aren't intellectually honest enough with themselves to say yes. Um, I think there's, and I think that's the dangerous part about it. 
because uh, we all know right from wrong, but we all make mistakes and driven to a certain level, we can make those mistakes that, you know, like I've been saying this whole time, could potentially kill somebody. And I think if you're an officer out there right now and you say, you know, I'll never do that. I mean, never say never, because while you're there, it could feel totally different. Um, and we're human beings at the end of the day. And it was very unfortunate what happened. But I mean, you can you can only operate at a certain level for so long before you have a failure. Like if you think of us, I mean, obviously, because because I'm in into software, you know, it consumes most of my time. If you think of us like a software, right, we only have so much server space and we need to be able to renew the server space somehow. And when we don't renew it, we're going to malfunction. And I think everybody, you know, some people have more or less, but I think everybody at, at some level is capable of like a mass malfunction. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great analogy and very, uh, very timely, I must say, because yeah. my hard drive is full. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, you know, last couple of days, I'm like, all right, I got to go back in here and clear some stuff out because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's really starting to, you know, my machine is really starting to bog down uh and i'm like please don't bonk when i'm recording uh, when i'm recording this episode <laughs> because that would be a problem but you know that's it it really is a perfect analogy and so that that's where yeah uh, you know, that's why the that's why this show exists you know Coptimizer is really about you know the theory around cop optimization and and recognizing that you know there are things that we can do that we can be very proactive but i love that i love this conversation around the fto because that's a conversation that you have to have with a recruit officer and you have to have right. them regularly and you have to pull up a video like that and show it to them and have a very honest can uh, cam conversation with them being very candid like you don't think that that could be you well guess what in an hour that could be you sure um and this this is kind of where we can talk about resource and go back to defunding, right? Um, if you if officers are working at salaries that are, you know, fifteen dollars an hour, eighteen dollars an hour, twenty dollars an hour, maybe that you know, looking at their healthcare stuff like that, uh, you know, in the end, that it's not a lot of money, and, and it is a lot. It's a ton of responsibility. For not a lot of money and again this is a calling it's not necessarily a job that you do knowing that you're going to get rich but you also have responsibilities for you know your family like trying to make sure that you can send your kids to school and have health care and 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 do you know do all the activities and have the things that you need so sometimes officers have a tendency to extend themselves for out of out of a financial need but in your case it wasn't necessarily that that route that took you down that road but it was more like Hey, I see something else that I have an aptitude for that I enjoy doing. And oh, by the way, I can make good money doing this. And then then I can supplement my income that I bring as a police officer. So I, I love doing my job as a police officer, but now I can also do something that can help support me and my family. So well, uh Tell me about that for you. So you got involved in, in software development. So how, how did that happen? Well, so it, it first started, um, I was really just looking for something to do. Um, if you haven't realized by now, I kind of just, you know, get bored 
when I figure things out. And I like, I had, I didn't have everything figured out, but I had a lot figured out when it, when it came to uh, um, being an FTO, being a police officer. And uh, I, I was, I kind of, I tried a bunch of things, right. I tried, I don't know if you're familiar with like NFTs. Um, yeah. They're a big scam. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody who could, who's much more knowledgeable about it than me, but I didn't do anything good with them. Um, I, I tried a whole bunch of things and what I really started to see, like just through research um, was like digital marketing is huge, whether it's marketing for influencers, marketing for nonprofits, marketing for like e-commerce brands. Um, it was, it was huge. And if you could understand how to market in really anywhere, specifically the internet, but really in any niche, if you could understand that, then um, you could, you can make a lot of money. And I didn't really know anything about social media. I, I didn't have like a personal Instagram at the time even. Um, so I just started like reading about it, learning it, um, got a website built, got scammed out of a bunch of money for a website um, that had to get rebuilt, um, made a bunch of mistakes. And eventually I started signing marketing clients for, you know, Google ads, uh, Instagram promotions, uh, Instagram growth, uh, Facebook meta ads, stuff like that. And after a short amount of time, I was I was making more money than um, I was as a police officer um, and meeting some really interesting people too. Um, most of my staff is outside the U.S. Uh, in different countries. So I've you know, I, I have a whole network around the world that I, that I've made. My, my customers are in all different countries. I mean, we operate in Portugal, Spain, Brazil, um, Netherlands, Germany. Um, and it was pretty much like, wow, there's a whole, you know, I've been working for the government since I was 18. I was 29 then. And it's like, there's a whole different world out there with, you know, a bunch of money. And <laughs> I, I can say I, I still have the marketing agency. I, I can say it's not I some of the people I work with, they work in like fields that I have a passion for. Like there's certain nonprofits I work with um that like I, I have I have a passion for that that align with some of my personal views. But um I never really had like a passion for marketing. I just kind of had a passion for the more I thought about it, I was like what more can I do? Right. Like I had a pa I have a passion for figuring stuff out is really what it comes down to. So after that, like when I saw, okay, this income is going to be stable. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. And I, it was a really hard decision for me uh, because I think at some level, no matter how much people don't say this, being a police officer becomes part of your identity at some level, right? Not, so, some people, they, they take it, you know, they have the blue line sticker. They, they take it really far and like everything they do has to be like, you know, about it. But no matter what, I think just the job, the way it is, it becomes part of your identity because it's so different than any other job. So that was a huge step for me um, to leave. And even though I was made, uh, I was making a significantly like significantly higher earning than I was making monthly as a cop, it was still you know, should I, should I do this? And then when I left, I kind of spent, you know, two months just hanging out. And uh, of course I got bored, you know, you can, uh, I kept acquiring new clients. And one day I was writing uh, SOPs for 
um, for the agency for like new, um, it was like new onboarding procedures for new clients. And because, uh, yeah, we have SOPs too. Just like uh, <laughs> I actually kind of set them up like the templates that us, um, the last agency I worked at, their general orders were. So uh, I kind of stole some stuff from them. But, uh, and I, I was using AI to do it. And I just got to thinking, I was like, I wonder if this thing could write a police report. And I made I made a screen recording of it and sent it to my friend, like as I was actively doing it. Uh, and he was working on the street at the time. And he was like, oh, wow. Uh, and it made a lot of mistakes at first. So that's when I got the idea for the software. Um, AI based police report writer. It does a lot more than that. But um, that's where I got that idea. And that's where that came from. So like I thought I was done completely with law enforcement, but it just I just had to like come back in, in a different way i guess it's when you think you're out they pull you back in yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're from jersey you get that right yeah, <laughs> yeah of course great movie um well no that so so when you're on the when you're trying to make that decision and this is kind of something for i i you know maybe just to touch on this for a bit because for police not only just police leaders and executives, but also for people in communities trying to trying to wrangle with this dilemma about how do you retain employees? And the old model, you know, in policing, we've never been challenged in this way before because the old model was you get hired, right? Like your dad, your grandfather, maybe your great grandfather. There's a lineage. There's there is a draw that that this is a, a a profession that has a lot of family history and you just know like hey, i'm going to be a police officer and that's what i'm going to do that's my that's my life and you know even outside of the identity you know um we could talk about we'll have to come back on touch on that for yeah. a minute but the you know that you know that kind of era really is gone like you and and again, I've talked about this a lot, but back in, you know, after the after the Ferguson days, I, I would present every year to our Indiana chiefs. I was on a panel discussion and I started asking the question, like, like how many how many of you in this room are actively encouraging your family and loved ones to enter into the profession? Mm -hmm. hey, you might have 50, 100 police leaders like chiefs in the room and very few hands were going up. And then, so, you know, I just, I was like, okay, well, how many people in here are actively discouraging that your, your loved ones enter this profession? Almost every hand goes up. Absolutely. So, you know, so that, you know, that was close to 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, again, I talked about it in our Citizens Academy classes and, and I just, I was worried. I was worried about the profession and I hate to say, you know, you know, I was right in a way because that's in 2015 and I said I was most worried. I wasn't worried about the next couple of years. I was worried about 2025. I was worried about 10 years from now when you when those applicate because we had already seen the, uh, we had seen the trend in our own agency as early as 13, 14, 15. Right. The number of applicants are just dro they're dropping um, even before Ferguson happened. And so when you start to really think about, well, what's causing this? Well, now in uh I did a previous episode with Matt Dolan and his firm and, you know, he had a, you know, they did a, a, a report on uh, the, 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 uh, the crisis in police staffing. 
which is really good. Dr. Richard Johnson wrote that. I encourage people to read it. Uh, he, he highlighted something that I hadn't really thought about in that there's ju there's just less people coming into the profession or, yeah. or less people aging up. Like the population is shrinking. So the number of people eligible to come into the profession are are shrinking. On top of that, you have growing rates of obesity, mental illness, other things that are, you know, we talked about it earlier, right? In that, you know, the background process, things that are going to eliminate. So now in a shrinking candidate pool, you have an increasing number of people that are ineligible to be police officers. So you're you're taking a whole swath of people right off the board. The military has been sounding the alarm for for the last five or six years as well. Yeah. Right. We we you know seventy five percent of 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 aged uh, men and women aged eighteen to twenty five are like ineligible or can't complete like the basic requirements, the screening requirements. So that's a national security issue. And then you have a domestic security issue in crisis and that the law enforcement's having the same thing only amplified. So when, you know, that question really, it, it's really when I really started to, to get concerned about it. And, I, you know, we've seen it play out. And then, and then of course, now to throw gas on the fire, you have things like the, the George Floyd incident, the Breonna Taylor incident, where, you know, you have a ton of public scrutiny on, on incidences of, you know, highly controversial police interactions. And, and so now we just make these broad sweeping uh, assumptions about policing in general without, you know, quite frankly, most people have no idea what the hell they're talking about, uh, but they talk like they do. And yeah. so more gas on the fire. And, and now we're in this position. And so now we have people like you that, you know, a military background, highly capable, highly competent in you know, uh, an independent thinker, a problem solver, a curious mind, a life learner, the type of person that would excel if you made a career out of policing, but now you're decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to go challenge myself in a different way. And therein lies, like, I think one of the most difficult things for administrators now to grasp is like, oh my God, people are leaving. And we're seeing that, like a 30% increase in people yep. leaving the profession outright. Um, and I think it's in the last five to seven years that we just didn't see that 20 years ago. People, you hired, you retired, uh, and then, uh, you, well, and then we could talk about wellness issues and and then you die within five years of retirement, right? That happens to a lot of cops, which is another reason why people in your generation are saying, yeah, I can see, I can see the negative outcome at the end, at the end of this path. So, and I can see the lack of support that I'm getting from the public, uh, from a financial perspective, from a pension perspective, uh, from an investment in me perspective. Yeah, I think I'll do something else. I'll go try it, and maybe I'll maybe I'll come back. Maybe I won't. And you you know you you chose the path to go a different direction, and uh, maybe walk us through that. You know that And I know you started to kind of comment on it, but it's like you were left with a difficult decision. Like I'm very successful financially in this in this job that I may, may, maybe just kind of stumbled into or, uh, or that you created uh, out of your curiosity, but you also are torn because you love what you do and you have a passion for it and you were good at it. Yeah, I, I think there was a huge, um, uh, it, it just made me laugh thinking about something. Uh, 
my my zone partner um he really i i didn't i talked to some people about you know what i was doing when i uh, while i was working there but i i didn't like really tell too many people it because like you know how that goes right um you know uh but i i remember and, and he 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 was like he witnessed me start all this stuff and um we talked from the beginning and i remember him telling me and it took like two months for him to get through to me. He's like, you need to leave. Um, and I was like, why? Like, what do you mean? You know, it just, it, it never really clicked to me because yeah, I was like, this is what I do. And then when you were talking about it, when I started to look at, you know, what does five years look like? You know, like my business model, like, you know, yeah, I have the business model. Like what's the next year? You know, what are our goals the next year? What's, what's our goals, you know, the next week? What's our goals the next five years? And then I tried relating that to law enforcement. And I was like, well, you know, like I go to a different unit, you know? Um, and there was just so much opportunity that I saw, right? Like outside, outside of it. But at the same time, when you look like, I'm sure it was like this at your agency as well. Everything is designed almost and it's not, I don't think it's like an intentional design, like it's some conspiracy, but human nature is designed to keep you in your group. Like you want to be part of your group because it's a, a very lonely process to leave. And like, yeah, I have a network of people, but but it's not the same, right? As, as a tight knit group of people. Um, so it's, it's a very lonely process to do and everything is telling you to stay in there. Um, and even like when you tell people, because I give them a month's notice that I was going to leave. Um, we always used to joke, you know, one day I was just going to have a bad day, take all my gear off, park my car and call an Uber. And yeah, we all make that joke when we're early in our careers. Even later, I think I gave him I gave him a month before I left. And, um, I had like a lot of people coming up to me like, oh, you'll be back. Or, you know, why are you doing that? That's dumb. Um, and it kind of made my decision harder, you know, what should I be doing this? Um, and I, I really think that the reason why we're seeing so much of it is one, because of that net, obviously there are people who wish me luck, but because of that negative pushback that you get, like the minute you think about doing something different and the fact that most officers don't feel like what's happening has their best interest in mind, why wouldn't you put your best interest first? Why wouldn't you leave to put your best interest first? So I think that's almost the decision maker uh, for, for a lot of people. I never really too much, me personally, I never really too much had the issue with like my best interest. I, I personally really didn't care about that. I understood I was part of an organization and, you know, I've been in the military before. So, you know, obviously like I'm not, you know, the special unique individual who needs to be given everything. But the, yeah, that pushback that you, that you receive and then, the fact that in today's society we're, we're so connected to what you, I mean, it's easy to make money. It's easy to do anything. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say what really made me like double down on the decision is when I told people I was leaving is when I gave the official notice, because it was almost like, Oh, you'll be back, you know, whatever. You know, like you can't do anything outside this profession pretty much. 
Um, and that really, that really made me want to leave. Like, I was like, I, I, okay. <laughs> That's the, yeah, kind of a, a reverse the psychology approach. And I was like, watch know. me, watch me. But well, I still call some of them to this day. Like if I have a really good month, I'll tell them. I've <laughs> since stopped. I've since, well, not to this day. I've since stopped. I've gotten better about that because that's kind of, you know, being an asshole. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, that's a little mature, uh, but yeah, you know, yeah. that that's, you know, but that's right. That's human nature. Right. And so, I, so this is where I'll, I'll give another plug to performance protocol and what they're doing in that, you know, bringing executive coaching and life coaching to the law enforcement space because it's not there. Uh, we're really yeah. good about having FTOs. We're really good about uh, sending people to like professional development and training programs that teach these technical and tactical skills. Um, but the one thing that where we've really fallen short is, and again, I just wrote about this. Um, I wrote about it in my in my blog post called "Resistance Is Futile." Um, like there's like there's this pull that's always there and, and whether you leave at the time that you you did or when when I did I retired you know right at the end of my 27th year um the end is coming for all of us at some point so you can't resist it but the you know it was a just a couple of years before I retired I went through this program and it required me to work with a professional coach and I'm like, I, it made me very uncomfortable. I, it was, I didn't, I, everything about this program I loved. And I was like, that was the one thing I was dreading. I didn't want to do. I'm like, well, why do I need to work with a coach? Like, this is going to be dumb. Like what's a coach going to bring for me in 20 minutes. And this, my coach is from New Jersey, by the way. And, <laughs> uh, super, uh, you know, so may, someday I'm going to call him and ask him if I can, if I can give his name, but he, you know, within the first 20 minutes of the call, it was a no nonsense call. He was just like, okay, tell me a little bit about yourself, your background. This is who I am. And then he was like, all right, what do we need to work on? And it's kind of like, what do you mean? And he's just like, everyone needs to work on something. So, you know, let me walk me through your day. And I, t I give this example a lot because that by the end of that first call, I changed my, my morning routine and, um, and it had such a huge impact. And I was just like, by, I was like, couldn't wait for the next call. So I had, you know, multiple sessions with the coach and by the time I'm done, the program's over, I'm done. And then I was like, Hey, I want more of this coach, like, <laughs> like worth my coach. And it was kind of like, it was an epiphany. I was like, man, why don't we do that later you know, or early? Why right. don't we wait until we're, you know, it, we're having problems or something's broken. Why don't we work with a coach that's, you know, and in, in, in a long story short, I, at the, it was right around the same time I got introduced to the folks from that, you know, the company it's now uh, performance protocol. And I saw what they were doing and I was like, it clicked immediately. I was like, Oh yeah. So we ran a pilot at our agency, you know, ran some additional pilots around, around the state. Now it's, you know, now they're in 13 States and it's doing really well. And it, it doesn't surprise me that it's doing well. Um, but it's that one of the things that one of the things that we're, encountering and that we're working with in agencies is this ideation around leaving the profession. Um, and we we're doing surveys and to this, to this point, um, you know, it is a startup, but we we've got a lot of data now that's trending. Like we've been able to, to work that number back to zero, like people that are engaging in the coaching process. And I'm not saying like, 
people aren't still leaving the profession, but sure. the the value and th- and maybe this would have been something that would have been really beneficial to you um, is that you work with a coach that's that's a law enforcement professional that's trained as a coach, but what they're also doing is they're giving you a sounding board, someone that's walked in your shoes, that knows your job, that understands the stressors, uh, that understands the decisions that you're trying to make, and then then really just helps you make the decisions that are going to be right for you. That you know they don't give coaches don't give advice. You know they're a, just a sounding board that um, to work with. And I, I just think this is something that's going to have to be widely adopted around the country. I, people are going to have to use these types of resources so they can develop their officers. So when when officers do get to these pivots in their career about what do I do next? You know, if this isn't enough, how do I, how do I pursue something that's going to, you know, really help me reach what my goals are? How is my agency really going to invest in me to, you know, to, you know, give me a career path, give me options for things that I can do that are going to challenge me, challenge me appropriately, but also really just so we maintain that right level of stimulation and keep everything in balance, you know, and health is, is, a, is a component of it. But yeah, this is really, uh, it's a kind of a, it's just kind of a cool perspective to really talk with you about what you struggled with going through that decision. And that is every police department in America right now, these conversations are happening right now. There's, there's not a doubt in my mind, right? Of course. I just talked to an officer the other day who, um, he was, Probably had two two years on, and uh, he uh, he called me, and I thought he was going to call me and say I want to open a business, and I was going to tell him no, don't, because um, <laughs> you don't have the right uh, personality for it, right? Um, so give he, him good feedback, for, yeah. be a good sounding board, not tell him what he wants to hear, but actually right. give him. But know, he have, said, have, he, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. That's what a coach he, does, right? So. <laughs> he said he he got a uh, he got a job and he was leaving. Like he got another job, um, like doing something completely outside of law enforcement. And uh, it was he was like, yeah, what? Why? And what he said to me, I asked him, I was like, why are you leaving? Um, and he was like, I guess it's obviously a lot of things, but. There was an issue he had with a sergeant where, like, the sergeant yelled at him. And, um, you know, I think we all joke about that, especially like, being in the military. It's like, oh, you can't take being yelled at. It's not that he couldn't take being yelled at because I remember watching him get yelled at when he was a trainee and I was an FTO. Uh, and it's not that. He's, he's very intelligent, very smart. Um, I think it's the fact that once all these things compound, like we talked about before, lack of sleep, all the things that we talked about, then somebody says that to you after you're, you know, down 10 reports, have to go to court at 8 a.m. in the, in the morning. Uh, you you can't get a day off. You haven't had any, any everything suboptimal. And then somebody yells at you, like, what? why am I doing this? You know? Um. So I, I think that, that really is it. It goes back to the, you know, not living a life that's just, you know, suboptimal. Uh, and I think if you increase that, obviously, if you increase that, you know, right now, you know, I feel great. 
I feel great. I'm so happy. Somebody would come up to me and yell at me. I'd be like, all right, cool, dude. All right. Sounds good, man. Whatever. Um, but when you're mentally just beaten down, that hurt that that could just destroy you. Um, and it's not about being like mentally weak or not not strong enough. It's I like well, there's, you, there's a physio that's a physiological response. It's a defense yeah. mechanism. And it, it's I need to you know, then it becomes avoidance, right? Which can exacerbate the problem even more. Yeah. It's like asking somebody to do like a major workout after they've been up for two days straight and haven't eaten. You know, their, their body's going to fail. Well, they're um, probably, they're certainly not going to perform as, as well as they could now. Sure. You know, so conversely, right. Uh, because here's, here's the benefit of coaching and here's the benefit of what someone like you in that situation can do because a lot of times people do leave for the wrong reasons. Yeah. It may because exactly what you just said, like we get stuck in the moment and we get in that little personal doom loop where we think nothing, you know, the yeah, ah, nothing's ever going to work out. And then and then once we latch on to something that we think is going to be the answer, now we lose focus on what reality is. And like, yeah. oh, I'm going to quit, I'm going to go do this and look some people can leave the profession and go and do great things. There's no doubt about it. But we also see officers that leave, and I experienced that, you know, my in my tenure, you know, people that have left and came, you know, that came back. And, you know, it's always nice when you see people come back um uh in a way, but in you and you welcome them back. But the 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 process is sometimes, well, you know, guess what I figured out? Like the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side. And so you, you know, when, and this is people leaving the profession and then coming back, and then you have sure. people that leave and go to a different department and then come back or people that, and, and I've actually had that, uh, I've had a guest on my show that, that did that as well. Um, the, you know, you're going to see all, it doesn't matter where you are, right? You're going to see all of these things and everybody has their own, their own reasons for why. Uh, but th that's again, where I like, man, Talk to a coach when you, if you get into these positions, this is why coaching for an agency can be so important because you can, you can get to these things before they happen. Uh, and then you can help people navigate those difficult decisions and then give them really good feedback. And that's why it should be someone outside of your, your personal loop. Like it shouldn't be, you, you talk, if you're talking about things about work, about your career development, things like that. Sure. Um, performance evaluations, all those things, Th those things need to be done in our agency. But, co you know, coaching is a, is a separate entity outside of that, where someone can, you have a safe space where you can, you can be honest. You don't have to worry about what you say coming back into your agency and people, oh, well, you know, I heard Eric's thinking about leaving. Oh, he thinks he's better than us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, he'll find out he'll fail. Right. And that's not necessary. That's not them trying to bring you down. That's really more about them. And yeah. about, you know, the, you know, the inner dialogue that starts in their own mind based on what they're seeing in you. Well, and it's it maybe their own fears being represented in what they say out loud. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, sometimes yeah. it's hard not to make those digs. Right. Um, and oh, I, yeah. As a young officer, I, I learned that the hard way. Like, yeah. I you know, I was kind of one of those guys that always had to have the last word. And it's even know, harder I was for me yeah. to not make the digs back at him now, too. Well, you're also from New Jersey, right? That's kind yeah. of an East Coast thing, right? 
yeah philly jersey new york <laughs> you know yeah that, that's not necessarily yeah, that, that's just kind of like the way you're raised right yeah like, yeah you're not gonna yeah i'm gonna be the one that ends this argument not you <laughs> all right so yeah all right we, we kind of got off on on some several several different tangents there but i i you know i can't even probably stress that enough like and and i again i wish i would have found it a lot sooner but i was glad i found it when i did and the you know the joy that i have now is like wow like through my own mistakes and own things you know that i've done you know here's something you know in, a, in the way that i think you can really give back to agencies um but you know you know as an administrator there's there's some trepidation in engaging in a pro in a program like this because uh one chief that i spoke with gave me some really good feedback um and along with uh the uh, ceo of the company and in that he was like look this and this is you know it's kind of evident about like the mindset inside of police departments and a police everybody is so uh they're you know so protective of their people right now and there's this cannibalization that you know people are stealing from other departments and that's creating you know feelings of resentment and anger and then it, it, you know then you kind of lose cooperation like well you're stealing my people and they're stealing and 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 so you you know there's this like this great shuffle going on. It's a good time to be an I guess a young officer, right? Where you can kind of like oh, twenty five thousand dollars signing bonus, you know, to skip it. It's like free agency and policing. But you know th this chief in particular, he said, look, he was like, uh, you know, when he was concerned, like, well, why would I want one of my officers engaging with a coach that's a law enforcement coach that comes from a different, you know, like somewhere else in this country, like how do I, I don't have no control over like the, you know, like who they are, what their culture is, what kind of influence they might have. Like I'm, I'm working really hard to do all the right things inside my organization and try to make this a great place to work. The last thing I want is somebody coming from the outside and, and being a negative influence. Like, oh yeah, you should go and, and leave your police job to start that lawn mowing business full time. Right. You know, that's, what's going to give you, you know, your life satisfaction at, um, and, you know, really what it boils down to is, it, and so, you know, one of the things that we just had to make sure that we were messaging properly is like, look, these are, these are coaches that have, that have been there and done that in policing, but that are, are really going to work for the interest of the individual and making sure that they're making the best decisions that they can. And they're, the training, that they go, they're highly vetted, right? The, the people that run the training part of this program are all from the FBI National Academy, and you know really really good at what they do so you know yeah you know if there's i can understand why chiefs you know if they don't know enough about the program or they're unsure about what coaching is or if they've never worked with a coach themselves they might just not understand what the process is so um yeah i i just say that because if there is an individual that's looking that's looking for Hey, like, yeah, maybe I am kind of trying to figure my way through this. And maybe I would like to talk to a veteran officer that that's not inside my agency. It's a great, it's a great way to do it. Um, I, and, and, you know, of course, we're, you know, we're not even talking about health and wellness and some of the decisions, you know, that, that can be impacted just negative, just from uh, the physiological response to poor diet, nutrition, lack of exercise. Um, and I've already, I've, talking talked many many hours on that yeah so tell me 
Uh, there was one story I, I got to go back a little bit. You were ta- you were talking like when you were when you were close to making this decision. One thing that kind of catapulted you was you showed up to work one day. Um, your your eyeball was twitching uncontrollably, and your supervisor looked at you and was like, "What what's wrong with you, man?" <laughs> yeah, I um one of one of the best sergeants I think I ever had. Um, like in the military, one of the best just leaders I think I ever had. Um great guy and we showed up for it we call them all week so they're like every other week for the ftos and we have our trainees there and we show up uh, so we work two to midnight and then we we'd show up the next day at, at five seven six six a.m um so that was always fun uh so and i had already gone i don't know how long it was without sleep or like a couple hours of sleep um because we were working i was working on this like pretty big contract um where i was going to get paid a pretty significant retainer and it was like it was a big deal um and i show up and i remember the day before like seeing double like driving like sitting in the passenger seat seeing double and like i fell asleep and didn't even realize i was sleeping until my trainee woke me up and uh I, I go in and I'm still like out of it uh, and we're sitting there and we're talking and I'm not processing anything that's happening. And uh, my eye, my left eye was just like uncontrollably twitching. And, uh, and my sergeant like knew something was wrong. He did a really good job at uh, like knowing, knowing these people and stuff like that. And uh, he, he knew I like, I don't drink. I don't, I don't do anything like that. He was like, what did, what is going on? He's like, you look like a zombie. Um, and I was just telling him, like, he, he knew I was working on a, on a business as well. I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, I, I haven't slept. He was like, how much sleep have you gotten? I was like, oh, like two, three hours. He's like, and how long? And I was like, I don't even know. And uh, pretty much just, just like go home and stop doing that. And after I got, you know, like 12 hours of sleep, it was it was a another big decision. It's like I'm destroying myself. I'd gained some weight too. Well, not some, a bunch. I'd gained a bunch of weight, um, and wasn't working out enough. Wasn't training enough, and yeah, I was like I'm killing myself doing this. Um, so that was definitely a huge impact on on making the decision. Well, and I can tell you from a physiological perspective, your blood sugar levels were probably extremely elevated. Um, you're probably insulin resistant, yeah. Um, which is creating a lot of inflammation in your body, which is now creating a negative cascading effect of, uh, on your health. And that's going to have implications in a lot of different things. And this is, so when, when we, when we look at the data that says police officers on average are dying 18 to 22 years you know, sooner than than for males and their male counterparts that are not in law enforcement. And we act surprised by it. Well, we shouldn't be right. Because in your case, you were working on, on, on side jobs that were personally related, but in a lot of agencies, that's mandatory overtime, right? That's or off duty uh, or whatever. Yeah, off duty gigs that, it, you know, it, it's you know, why you're doing it really is kind of irrelevant to the impact that it has on your health. Absolutely. So as an organization, right, as an administrator, you know, this is the, these are very difficult subjects 
uh, particularly in union states and stuff like that, right? Because now you're like, you have an obligation to ensure that your people, when they come to work, are uh, prepared and ready to go. They're well-rested, they're well-trained. And if you, and so it kudos to that frontline supervisor for recognizing, hey, something's off here and not just letting it go. Not just, you know, saying, oh yeah, you know, it's just Eric, he's, you know, he's burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. And then, you know, letting him hit the street, <laughs> particularly as an FTO. So, you know, he addressed it, um, confronted you about it, which now forces you to confront yourself about, hey, what am I doing here? Because had he just let that go, you know, there could have been a lot of different outcomes there, right? You could have gone down the path where you try to do this for six months. And yeah. you know, one of those days you crash your car, um, you get into a shooting that you otherwise wouldn't have, you know, pulled the trigger on and the cameras capture it all. And then you, and then you're saying at that point, uh, well, I was tired. Um, and now the agencies, you know, if they don't have good tracking mechanisms, understand, well, why is, is Eric coming to work tired? Because it's our fault because we're working him too much. Um, or is it on Eric? Because Eric, eh, maybe, maybe you just like play video games, which is a, a big thing with young officers, right? Yeah. They'll, they'll stay up all, they'll, they'll stay up all night gaming and then come back to work. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's all these things that, that, you know, there's all these influences that it's difficult in the law enforcement environment. So yeah. Um, it's another reason why having a coach can be very beneficial. I know I keep coming back to that. And this is kind of the first show where I've really talked about that a lot, but you know, these are, um, they're all important. They're all important things. Um, you know, from a behavioral change perspective, you know, the first, the first thing that anyone needs to recognize that, Hey, we're on a, we're on a negative path is really to have an awareness that they're on, on that path. And sometimes when you're tired and stressed, it's hard to have that awareness and, you know, having somebody else pointed out to them. I, I tell, I used to, I used to own and operate a CrossFit gym. So I, very, very similar to what you're saying, right? I understand what it's like to, to busy, you know, to juggle a lot of different things. And, you know, you have to have good systems in place and you have to have a good support network. Um, but for people that, that are wanting to get in shape, people come in, into gyms all around the country every, every year particularly in January, right? After they've made that new year's resolution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they don't have a good under, they don't have a good why. Um, no. you know, Hey, why are you here? What are you doing? Um, well, I want to look better. Um, and I want to feel, I'm going to lose weight and it's, and, but they, but they really haven't dug deep as to, as to what their purpose is on it. And so, so one of the things, one of the things I love about any type of program, you know, where, where you're working with an individual is, you know, get them, get the labs done. You know, we worked with groups out of um, Reno, Nevada called specialty health, where we did what we call the police panel. Um, and that ultimately led to another group called uh, precision health reports and, and um, performance protocol works with precision health reports too. So that's actually part of the coaching program. One of the, you know, one of the things that, a, that a, someone that can enter into is, Hey, I, I'm going to get my blood drawn right off the bat and I'm going to get my 10 year cardio cardiovascular disease risk assessment. And when people start seeing all these negative numbers, like 70% of police officers in America are insulin resistant right now and don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, it, it just, and that's, that's the precursor to cardiovascular disease. That's what sends a lot of these uh, negative loops. And, and, and that can be pretty, you know, you know, it can be a 10 to 15 year uh, early warning sign. Like, 
and then you know so getting someone like to realize hey you're on a you're on a bad path uh and then we we've caught a lot of things where it's like yeah you have significant issues that are previously been undiagnosed so uh a lot of a lot of reasons why you know having uh having sounding boards and having mechanisms in place that can help keep you in uh, on the right path is good so changing gears you you make the decision you leave um you're working on this company full time um did you feel kind of like that separation anxiety like may i don't know if that's the way to put it but like kind of like and i think you mentioned it maybe you felt like a little adrift uh, when you once you were outside of policing or maybe you felt like an outsider i would say out of all the things i've done it was the hardest thing i've ever done um and for a couple aspects right um one obviously the whole separation thing uh to the mentality shift um one of the biggest things that i realized was so in law enforcement or in any high risk job you're always looking for the next threat right every call we go to we're we're looking for a threat um and usually there's a threat there of some sort it's usually not like super high risk but usually there's a threat there or somebody's done something wrong you know we're not just showing up to say hi um so I took that with me into the business world, which at some level, right, is a good thing. Um, but at another level, it creates an insane amount of paranoia. Um, like when you think everything's going to go wrong all the time because your whole life you show up and everything is going wrong because you're showing up because everything's going wrong. So um, that was that was like one of the most difficult um, you know, where I did have the, the talk with, you know, with myself where it was like, wow, you know, I might not be able to do this. And it wasn't, I might not be able to do this because, you know, I don't have revenue. I don't have income. It was, I might not be able to do this because of me, because of how I am like hardwired. I since figured it out. Right. Uh, but that is something that, I think is the hardest thing when you get out of law enforcement, especially when like you enjoyed the career um, and you enjoyed the people. And one more thing as well, generally in law enforcement, you can trust the people you're working with, at least operationally, right? At least operationally, you can trust, especially in the squad I was on, you can trust, hey, you know, there's a guy here with a gun. I know he has my back. I know she has my back. But in the business world, it's not the same sense. And I, I think there were a lot of times where I, I don't want to say blindly trust you. At one end, right, I'm thinking about all these risks that could happen, about like how like everything could just come crashing down. And then at the other end, I'm just blindly trusting these people who are like scumbags. And, you know, I'm getting scammed out of money. And uh, I, I think a lot of people don't, don't talk about this too. It, just in general in life, people don't like to highlight um not they're, they're you know failures people don't uh but I, I learned the most from it and um and everybody wants to make it seem easy right especially like with e-com like internet stuff you see a 19 year old kid you know who's driving a g-wagon and he has a bunch of money and he's like yeah i just did this like, it's hard it's it's very hard in a business aspect in general and when you come from a place where um one there's there's a decent level of discipline Two, um 
when you do things, you're not doing them to like make the business better. You're doing them to, to just stop whatever nonsense is going on. Usually like usually you're just trying to stop the problem and like just stop the bleeding pretty much. Um, so when you, you make that mentality switch, it's, it's very hard. And I think there's a lot of people, and I think that's why a lot of people end up going back. Um, but yeah, I, I, there's, it's, it's very, very difficult, um, to completely change your mentality, but vice versa. I think if we can apply that mentality to law enforcement, we're going to fix a lot of these problems that, that we've been talking about because, obviously you need to understand threats you need to you need to understand when bad things are going to happen or when you shouldn't do things but like also not everything's bad all the time uh and if we can apply that mentality to law enforcement i think it would make the average street officer's job much easier and their quality of life much higher yeah it's a great that's a great point because you have to train that right yeah um and yeah, that's it's something I don't think gets addressed enough. That that and, and a lot of times civilians just don't understand that because yeah. you have to train. You know, you know what are the hands doing, right? You know, what are the you know what's the the body positioning tell us? You know, it there because threats can come from anywhere, and, and sadly now we're seeing these uptick and in, in ambushes on on officers. I just watched the body cam footage from the uh, the uh, Fargo incident. I don't know if you watched that or not, but you know, it's these guys oh. are just working a, a fender bender in the street. Yeah, okay. Opens up on them yeah, on it with yeah. a with an AK. Um, you know, I I thought that you know, you had excellent excellent response and, but you know you're you know you're behind the curve there, right? You know you're 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 already behind in the UDA loop and um, it takes it takes a little bit to recover from that and and trying to train people. You know how do you, how to be mentally flexible to be able to move in and out of those uh, uh, into that in that decision making cycle. Um, you know it requires a it requires a, an officer with with sufficient IQ, right? Someone that's that's got good social adaptation, somebody that is mentally flexible. Um, and and I think a lot of that can you know some people say it can't be taught. I I'm a firm believer that it can be taught. Just might take more time and uh and and the right type of and, and the right type of training right not not one it might not just be one method fits all in, in training in training people so that could, we could we could talk probably another have another eight hour conversation on you know, on how to change training but the last comment i'll make there and then, then we'll wrap this up with a couple uh, i want to you know uh, conclude with some of the stuff that you're doing now. I think that's that's pretty exciting for law enforcement. But um, I've, I've talked about this previously on the show, and I've been talking about it for a few years. But this this concept of you know, if you want to improve policing, you you have a military background, and um, th- th- I'm really hoping that we can get the groundswell going on this conversation. But if you want to improve policing, then we might want to look at a, at a special operations style model in policing. In that mm-hmm. you hire, uh, you know, you're adding personnel to your department so you can provide sufficient amount of training and time off, um, so you can cycle people through the work cycles and and, and in their rest cycles they can also train. Uh, so it's kind of like that, you know. Uh, I've made the analogy I've used before is with you know seals like 
you know, it takes them two years to get trained up, right? At a, to a minimum level of competency. And then, uh, you know, give or take, right? And then then they go on deployments, might be three, four, six month deployments, and then they go on rest cycles, and then they go on training cycles, and then they go back. And I think every, you know, every branch now kind of has, you know, very similar models, because that's what they're finding is the best way to retain people, retain talent, not break people, and make them maximally effective when they're at work. And, you know, policing just isn't doing that. I mean, there's just no investment coming in to try to make things like that happen. And I think if we did, the profession would become a lot more appealing to the next generation that's like, oh, look, wow, I wouldn't just be going out and working midnight shifts all the time, just getting beat into the ground. Um, it would be, I would have great opportunities to not just learn my job, but learn collateral duty assignments and do it in a way that's that's not going to, you know, you know, throw my work-life balance into, into the toilet. Um, yeah. Any quick thoughts on that? I like that idea a lot. I don't know how you'd implement it, but I really like that idea a lot. Time and money. There's nothing Time, in it. money. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, and, I really and a lot like, of will. Yeah. And even if it's, you know, like a month on month off type thing or, or something that rotation is, I think that would be crucial. Um, I don't know how that would work with like, circadian rhythm and sleep cycles but it's definitely better than what we're doing now right as far as the impact on sleep cycles well firemen have figured it out right yeah they do pretty well they all seem happy um yeah uh, <laughs> for a lot of different reasons <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. I, I i mean i only make that joke flippantly but it is it's true right i mean that that's something that they've they just firemen have always been ahead of the curve in terms of you know, how to build safeguard and protections into their contracts for what they're doing, like, you know, yeah. the equipment that they wear, you know, their policies, uh, you know, what they will and won't do. I mean, they clearly define you know, what their what their job responsi- responsibilities are going to be in advance. And so they're really, you know, that's um, and they and they fight to protect those things vehemently, which is, you know, kudos to them. Um, you know, policing, policing just isn't there yet. There's just the expectations have always been different. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out one day. All right. So you, so you, after you've been working, been very successful with your marketing, you're, you're adjusting to this life in the civilian section. And now you, you see tools and technology that you're taking your past experience as a police officer and you're making these connections like, oh, I see how this could be applied here. Um, we can use we can use AI to make uh, a police officer more efficient. So tell us a little bit about um, that. What what you know what was kind of the nexus of that process, and you know where are you hoping to go with it? So yeah, pretty much. Um, I have uh, from 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 the marketing agency um, came into contact with you know a lot of people who have much better knowledge of marketing than I do and um, developers, uh, coders, developers uh, at, at a very high level. They they don't spend too much time working on government stuff because the private sector is significantly more lucrative. Um, I, I think I have a, you know, an amazing developer and an amazing marketers as part of my team. And what, we, what I realized was, well, you know, I can take this AI software and use it to optimize police work. And at first it was like kind of a joke. And like, I was like, yeah, let's just make this and see. And 
essentially what, what we have now is a system that can uh, write a report in more than like a 16th of the time it would take you to write a regular report. And how it gets the information is from a prompt the officer puts in, or we can integrate with uh, body cam video and transcribe that and use that uh, to write a report to like whatever agencies, whatever they want, right? And this is just the start. There's so many things that we can do with that. Uh, but the, the, the biggest thing that we have now is we have a huge time saver. So even if you're not integrating body cam, it's taking a synopsis from the officer and writing a full report. Um, obviously, the officer has to put in a correct synopsis. Um, but the report is, I mean, you saw it before. It's a, it's a significant report. And it's done to whatever agency standards, um, state, it follows all state laws, and it's custom. And what we're dealing with now, too, is uh, we can do this for detectives, for writing search warrants for the entire thing, much better than like these fillable templates that exist. And when you look at it from the outside, you're like, okay, cool, it completes text, it writes reports. Some people see it and they're, they're amazed by it. I'd say most street officers that have used it are like, wow, this is amazing. But in the long term, I think it's overall going to increase uh, from like a leadership perspective, it's going to increase retention. And the reason being is it's a software made for officers. Most softwares out there aren't made for officers. Um, we're, we're, the whole idea behind this is to make it officer friendly and to give them more time to you know be on the street, do the things they want to do. Uh, how many times, you know, you're back 10 reports, you go back to the station and you know, you know, you're going to be there three, four hours. Imagine if each of those reports took two minutes and then all you're focusing on doing is, uh, it's just proofreading, making sure everything's correct. Um, it's just proofreading, checking boxes, as opposed to using like, you know, two separate functions, typing, making sure everything's correct and in the format it needs to be. You just throw raw info in there, or if it's body cam integrated, you throw body cam info in there and then you just proofread. And edit if if need be. Uh, you're not going to need to edit. Right. I yeah, so. I mean that's um, well. Uh, I've had these conversations many times before, and I think people that know me that are listening to this are going to be like, "Man, yeah, surprised you guys didn't meet sooner." But you know, in short, what if if I could summarize what you're doing, it's using technology to automate processes that otherwise yeah. a human's going to have to do, and that takes time. And actually, you know, so. The, the big question that, that is being answered right now, and not just in policing, but, you know, everywhere, right, is how do we know what's AI generated? How do we know what is real in terms of what a person is generating? And so sometimes people make some, uh, I think they make some leaps about, you know, because any technology that can be used for good is already being used for evil. <laughs> so absolutely. <laughs> It, you know, nobody knows that more than cops, right? So yes. uh, we're, sometimes we're just, you know, if it's it's a technology thing, we're usually just the last to find out about it, right? It's been <laughs> yeah. going on for a while. By the time we catch on, you know, there you know, people are already ready to pivot, move to the next thing, you know, stay one step ahead. But that's a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother issue. But yeah, um, so streamline these processes because, and maybe there's never been a more important time for this because we are short staffed. We are asking officers to do more with less. So we really do need to be finding technology 
that's going to leverage their best qualities. Um, uh, we don't need officers sitting in cars for hours on end typing reports if we have uh, an automation process that can do that efficiently um, and meet all of those requirements you know, from a legal perspective and just quite frankly, just from a, a moral perspective, right? You know, we have a moral obligation to make sure that we're telling the truth and that everything that we document is is factual based on the best information that we have available to us. Um, and I would say for those that are concerned about that, I'm like, it's good to keep an eye on it. Absolutely. Sure. But it's also, I think it should be comforting to know that this will actually provide officers with more latitude to be able Absolutely. to capture more information and and be able to make better decisions because we're we're just getting more data yeah and that's you know that's you know more data is a bad thing if you can't manage it it's a great thing if you've got systems you know that can that can simplify it for you yeah and i i think also cuz cuz i do get that question a lot like what's the state attorneys or district attorneys or whatever you call them where you're at uh what what do they think about this? And my response is, well, what do they think about an officer who's who, who's operating at an 80 IQ because he's so depleted writing a report? I mean, uh, what we're doing now is is not great. Uh, we we should do better. Amen. Amen. So. All right, we've been going for a while. We better wrap this up. So, for if so, if someone wants to learn more about about what you're doing in that realm, um, how can they get in touch with you? Um, one, you can go to the website policereports.ai, fill out a contact form, or uh, I'll just give my number out. You can call me. Um, it's eight four eight four five nine one six eight two. Once again, eight four eight four five nine one six eight two. That sounds like a that, that sounds like a commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to write better police reports? If you call me for eight, I can't remember. Yeah, just call me or text me and uh, we can set your agency up with a free custom trial. And, you know, um, however, uh, whatever you guys uh, and girls want, really, um, there's there's really no limitations on what we have. Uh, There's certain things that we're working on that I think are pretty cool. And um, it sounds crazy, but. Uh, my five-year plan is uh, to change the world somehow, hopefully for the better. Um, and uh, right on, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, All right, man. Let's end with that because what what more could we? Uh, we can't make a bolder claim than that. I'm in five no. worlds. I'm gonna in five years. I'm gonna make the world a better place. I love. I it. hope. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, hope is not a plan, right? <laughs> <laughs> i got a plan don't worry all right but i, I know you works. do well hey eric it's been a pleasure speaking with you i really do appreciate you uh sharing you know your personal story and you know i think it's provided some really good insights for for police officers maybe civilians that are listening to this curious about what's going on in policing particularly around these issues of of recruitment retention um, and these difficult decisions that not just officers are making, but administrators are making, trying to provide the best service they can for their communities, and uh, you know, have a have a workplace that people, you know, you know, that want to, you know, that they where they want to be, and like where they know that they can make a difference in their community. And let's face it, right? It's not the the job isn't for everybody. So uh, sometimes it's addition 
by subtraction when you lose people, but we don't want to lose the good ones and we want to make sure we're bringing the best in. And uh, your insight today, I think has, uh, has uh, really kind of shined a light on this conversation. So appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great. Right on. Okay, everybody. Until next time, we'll be 1042. The Coptimizer podcast is powered by Performance Protocol. Performance Protocol brings professional executive coaching to police officers and administrators at all levels of the organization. Performance Protocol has the blueprint that will operationalize organizational optimization. It is purpose-built for today's public safety employees to help them accomplish goals and live better. What is it? One-on-one video-based coaching with officers and leaders who have been in your shoes and know firsthand what it means to live and work in public safety. The program will connect you with certified coaches who combine their years of success in the world of law enforcement with world-class training from the cobble of performance protocol coaches. Get the support, resources, motivation you need to live the life you want. Performance protocol coaches are relatable, knowledgeable, and confidential. Most importantly, they get results. Why should the keys to unlocking our peak performance be reserved for just the boardroom or the playing field? Unleash your full potential today and get started with Performance Protocol. Remember, performance is the goal. Protocol is the path. Log into www.performance-protocol and learn more about how to bring this program to your agency and community.